Would to God that one day when we get more elderly that we can say the longer we serve him, the sweeter he grows to us, right? Amen? Amen. I want to thank every one of you for the lays and the, the show of appreciation. Um, God, is, God has really blessed a lot of you out there. And I believe because you've allowed Jesus to shine out through you. So I praise God for every single one of you here this morning. Thank you. Praise God. This morning I wanted to share with you from the Word of God. Um, our opening text this morning, I invite you to turn to me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 is our opening text. The sermon entitled this morning is A Double Allegiance. A Double Allegiance. Allegiance. Now, is a double allegiance a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? Is it okay to be completely loyal to two different people at once? Is it, is it okay to do that? Is it possible? Complete allegiance. Well, let me ask a question for the husbands. Is it okay that you gave your vow of fidelity to your wife and still give your heart of affections to another woman? Wives, watch your husbands and their answer. Is it okay to give your allegiance of your heart affections and thoughts to two different women this morning? So my question is this morning, is it okay to really give your double allegiance to God and to someone else or something else this morning is my question. And also to ask us the question, do I have this about allegiance that the Bible talks about with God and something else or someone else? And this is a question I believe we should ask ourselves as Christians every single day for the rest of our lives. Is my prayer. Let us pray. Father, as your word is open, we humbly ask that you may show us what you want us to learn this morning. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we become? We become through Christ. Notice the Bible says here, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The Bible says that we are citizens of heaven, citizens of the fellow saints on this earth and in heaven. So we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Now, there's a lot of talk lately about double allegiance out there, meaning there's people who come to the United States and they become a citizen, but while they're citizens, they're still loyal to another country, and they may charge, do like terrorist plots or whatever it may be. Their loyalty is divided. Their allegiance is divided. But I want you to notice here, when someone becomes a citizen of the United States, there's an oath they read, and here's the paper that the handout. Let's look at the first one. This is actually the oath of allegiance for naturalized citizens of the United States of America. When you leave your home company, country and you come to a new country, and the United States of America, this is what you have to say. It says here, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom of which I heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution 
and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that are bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Do you see that? In other words, when you leave a foreign country and you take an oath to the United States, you are required to give the oath of allegiance from your foreign place where you used to be and give your full oath of allegiance to the United States of America. That is required. Now, if someone was to break this allegiance that they made to the United States and go back and give their allegiance to the nation they came from, they would be unfaithful to the United States of America and to the citizenship here, right? And if this is true, then we can conclude that the oath that the person made on that day was not really sincere at all. In fact, they were playing both sides, and they wanted to get the most off. They were doing it for personal gain. They wanted to be elite, show their allegiance to their foreign country where they're from, but they wanted the benefits, what they could get out of being a United States citizen. Is that not true? We can conclude. But just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so is the citizenship of the heavenly kingdom over the citizenship of this earth. If, we have a, if there was an oath of allegiance for Christians, this is what it would be reading. And look at your handouts here. It's exactly the same wording, but it would say a little bit differently. It would say, that on being admitted to this citizenship of heavenly kingdom, I then do absolutely and forever renounce and adjure all allegiance and fidelity to every foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty whatsoever, and particularly to the prince, and God of this world. Amen? When you give your allegiance, when you are baptized, you have the oath to God, you give your allegiance to God. Therefore, God requires a full allegiance over even all kingdoms, including the United States of America, beloved. Amen? God's allegiance comes first. Now, if a professed Christian is still loyal to the worldly kingdom, then they are unfaithful to the heavenly kingdom and their citizenship there also, right? Beloved? Do you not see that? And if this is true, then we can conclude that the oath that the person gave when they were baptized to God and their allegiance to God was not sincere at all. And we can conclude also that that person was motivated by ulterior motives and thus playing both sides, seeking to be a Christian only for personal gain to themselves. Now this world... If one was to be, have an allegiance or the, the high crime of treason, commit that crime, one would be tried of treason and extricated from the United States of America. Right? But what happens when we are Christians? In the same way, if we are not loyal to God, it gives a bad flavor to those out there who are looking at what a Christian is. Sabbath school talked about the light is Jesus. See, what is the light? The light came in this world, Jesus is the light, to reveal who God really was because Satan brought darkness or he brought error of who Christ was. He spread false lies because he's the father of lies, right? He spread false lies and rumors about God's character of love and thus the whole world believes that God is not really love because he's a cruel God, right? How can you coincide the Old and New Testament? So God is a liar, and he's cruel, and he's, and he's mean. And Satan, the light, that's what Satan's saying about God. And so 
the light came to reveal the truth about God's character of love, that if you see his character of love, you will fall in love with him and thus serve him with all your heart. Right? Amen? So that's the whole big controversy that's going on. And the Bible says that you, beloved, this morning, the citizen of heaven, you are the light of the world. Amen? You are commissioned by God as a citizen of heaven to go out and to reveal that Satan is a liar and that God truly is love this morning. Amen? You as a light go out and reveal and let people know that God is truly, God is love, as 1 John 4 verse 8 says, is true this morning, beloved. Amen? Your commission is a citizen to go out there. Not only by what you say, but as Sheridan Children's story, what you do this morning. You can profess all you want, but you can continue on just driving down that road, not being like the Good Samaritan, right? Amen? So as lights of the world, not only would talk, so God's citizenship, he wants us to be citizens, but he wants us to reveal the character of love, not only by what we say, but especially by how we live our lives this morning. Amen? It's much more important to do that. You see, the moment we are born again, God calls us to a specific ministry within his body to do. Everyone has been given a ministry to do as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. And in this ministry, we are to give our full loyalty and allegiance to God, whatever needs that God calls us to do. And whatever job we have in this world, when we become converted, that job is only meant as a means to support you in truly the full-time ministry that God has called you to this morning. Amen, beloved? He has called you to a ministry, and whatever job, profession, and money, and work you do was really meant to support you in a ministry that God has called you to this morning. But most Christians got it backwards. As double allegiance Christians, their loyalty is to the kingdom of this world, with its money, its career, its conveniences that the world offers. Thus revealing that the hearts are still in the earthly country and not in the heavenly one above. They think that six days out of seven they can live for the world and that just giving a little bit of their time each week, one day a week, a little bit, an hour, even five minutes or so, is all that it means to be a citizen of heaven. But that is not what it means to be a loyal citizen of the heavenly kingdom this morning, beloved. God is looking for faithful and loyal citizens of heaven who are serving not one day or one hour or one minute a week, but they're serving seven days a week 24 hours a day, beloved. Amen? In a ministry that God has called them to so that when they come to church, they can share to the testimonies and praises of how God has been using them to the ministry that God has called them to during the whole week, beloved. Amen? That is the calling that God has called us to, to reveal the light to others. Now, can a person serve two masters? Turn to Luke chapter 16 in your Bibles, please. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Can you serve, can you have two allegiances? Look what the Bible says here. Luke 16, 13, the Bible says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will love, hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, the things of this world, money. You cannot have two allegiances. For, think about it, allegiance to the world, one allegiance to the world, plus another allegiance to God, 
don't know about you, but one plus one equals what? Two. But you cannot have two masters. You cannot have two allegiances. You can only have one allegiance, one master. Look at this quote here, the third quote on the handout. It says here, from Signs of the Times, it says, Despite the many sovereigns that we have, to whom men profess allegiance, all mankind are serving one of two masters, the Prince of Light or the Prince of Darkness this morning, beloved. You see, you can't serve one. By default, not serving God, you are by default serving the Prince of Darkness this morning, Satan himself. You cannot choose to serve two. There can only be one that you can truly serve this morning. This morning, is there ground for suspicion against you this morning for having a double allegiance, thus making you guilty of the high crime of treason this morning? Is the question I asked you this morning myself. Now turn to James chapter 1 verse 8. What happens to a person who has double allegiance? Turn to James chapter 1 verse 8 this morning. Right after Hebrew, James chapter 1 verse 8. You know what the Bible says here? James chapter 1 verse 8. The Bible says, A double-minded man or a person with double allegiances is, what is that word? Unstable in how many ways? All his ways. So a person who is double-minded is unstable in all the ways. For the, why? Because they're living two lives. Think about trying to live two completely different lives, a Christian. For one moment, a Christian comes to church and they testify with their mouth the goodness of God. But the next moment, they're telling a lie to someone to cover up something they've done. One moment, they go to church and they're reproving their brother or the sister at church, while the next moment, they're practicing dishonesty in their business dealings. One moment, they're lifting up their voices and song to praise the God. Well, the next moment, they go to home and they're raising their voices angry at, them, at their wife and their children. One moment, they're praising God through their prayers on their knees. Well, the next moment, they're calling people up and spreading rumors behind their back. A double-minded man, beloved, is unstable in all their ways. They're living one way among other people, but behind closed doors, they're living a completely different way. Do you know anyone like that? I have. I see him in the mirror every once in a while. <laughs> it's unstable. You're acting this way, but you're completely acting a different way. And not that you're by yourself, kneeling on your knees, praying and pleading, which has nothing to do with anybody, actually, just yourself. But then dealing with other people, you're a totally different person. Is that truly a person who has allegiance to God, truly beloved this morning? Is a question I ask myself. Is that truly a person who is showing true allegiance to God? Is that a person that people can say, yes, that is a light revealing the falsity, the error, the lies of Satan, that when they look at your life, that, wow, God is truly good, that God is a loving God, God is a, a great God, and He's a merciful God, therefore I want to give my heart and my life 
to him because of, look at that person, how he treats me. Isn't that a powerful testimony? And they would truly say that person has an allegiance to God. He's truly surrendered to God this morning. God's character is vindicated and his goodness is shown. Now, what do those who profess to be Christians who are not belong to? Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. There are people who are professing to be Jews or um, spiritual Jews or Christians. You know what the Bible says? Jesus said, I know your works in tribulation and poverty. Verse 9. But thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Christians and are what? Not. But are the synagogue or what? Church of what? Satan. Where is their allegiance? They're professing the allegiance, yes, to heaven. That's one thing. They're professing, they're saying, they're professing allegiance to heaven. But their allegiance, their lifestyle, how they really live, what they were saying is allegiance to heaven. What they were doing was allegiance to this world. And Christ calls them really not the church of Christ. Not, not a, and I'm talking about the building. We studied that the church of Christ is universal, right? It's written in the books of heaven. They're really, they're written in the books of the church of Satan. Their allegiance is not to Christ really, but it's really to Satan this morning. There is a statement that says, but our pioneers have been studying about why did we begin? What was the purpose of this church? And we forget our vision of people perish. So I went back and I studied what is the purpose of this church. And there's a statement that our people who began the Seventh-day Adventist Church, what they said, and they said this. They said, ecclesiastical or church organization is destructive of Christian efficiency. The more organized and structured and the hierarchical structure that it has, the more destructive it is for the spiritual growth of the body. Interesting comment, the foundation that this church was founded upon. Now, the point is brought up, well, without ecclesiastical organization, then there would be disunity and stifled growth would happen. But I want you to look at this history book from Lessons of the Reformation. Look at the fourth quote on the first page on the bottom. Notice what it says here. This is when the United States began and the Protestant churches swept through the United States. Notice what it says. During the active ministry of Alexander Campbell and his coadjutors, the churches of Christ in America were without a vestige of ecclesiastical organization and for the most part without any general cooperative agencies or enterprises calling for universal and united effort. In other words, there is no hierarchical structure overseeing and making sure everyone's doing right and making sure they're believing the right way and um, doing what they're telling them to do. Each church was on their own independent. But notice what happened. This is actually history books. It says, Yet during that period, they surpassed all Protestant denominations in the rate of multiplication, increase in membership, impress and influence on the religious world and growth in public favor without the big all these you know it's always been a thing in the, among the people especially since the 60s that took there's so much so much positions being created new positions and being filled of sometimes people who really don't do anything sometimes go around and visit and speak you know their thoughts of team cutting out and i sit on the conference executive committee and there's always been talk about cutting out the union level, you know. All these administrators and all this top-heavy institution that is developed and less workers on the grassroots era. But 
it says here that without this, it actually grew more without the ecclesiastical organizational structure on the top, top heavy. An astonishing fact, and even one more astonishing, is that without an ecclesiastical standard of faith, without no creed, and without any Episcopal supervision, these churches were more homogenous in faith and practice and more indissolubly united than any of the denominations which relied upon these things to ensure their own unity. It's interesting, the more organized a church comes, the more disunified the church becomes on a grassroots level. Why is this? It was primarily because they accepted and followed the scriptures as an all-authoritative, all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. Where the scriptures spake, they spoke. Amen? In other words, when you have a creed, you go, oh, it's already worked out for me. I just got to believe it. I don't have to study anymore because it's already worked out for me. But if the Bible is a creed, you go like, wow, well, if the Bible is a creed, then what does it say? I better go and study it. And as they study, the Holy Spirit works with that person, and they actually become unified with someone 2,000 miles away who's studying the Word of God too, and the Holy Spirit brings them into unity of doctrine and spirit, beloved. Amen? And that's how God works. Now, in a worldly organization where there is no Holy Spirit and there's no God, of course there's going to be disunity. But where God is truly alive in His church, He will individually impress and lead and guide the individuals within the church to what is truly true this morning. It's interesting, even our own church right now, the main challenge as I hear, I've always hear with the leadership, is that the church is fragmenting. We're getting more organized, but the church is more fragmenting, more and more and more. The more we depend upon God, the more unity God's church we have this morning. Amen? Turn to Colossians chapter... I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. What will happen in the last days is the voice of the seven angels. Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. Notice the Bible says, But in the days of the voice of the seven angels, and he shall begin to sound, this is the last days where we're living, the mystery of God shall be finished, or be understood and completed as he had declared to his servants the prophets, as it said throughout the word of God. So the mystery of God will be finished and understood and declared by the word of God through his prophets. You see, the opposite of the mystery of God is the mystery of iniquity or the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church. And we tell people to come out of her, my people, right? Come out of her, my people. And we say, it's not the people we say, but it's the system. And if it is the system this morning, then my question is, what is the system that we need to be careful about that we need to come out of, right? It's a good question. In order to find out what the system is, let's look at what the mystery of God is. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. Let's see what the Bible defines as the mystery of God, and then we'll know what the mystery of iniquity is. Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27. Notice the Bible says, Even the mystery of God, which had been hid from ages and from generation, but now is made manifest to his saints. What is it? To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in what? The church. Is that what it says? Building. Is that what it's saying? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Throughout all the ages, the mystery of iniquity hid the truth about the mystery of God through its false system. 
but now it's made manifest to the saints whom God will reveal the mystery of God to the riches of his glory. For the mystery of God is the truth that through Christ this morning, beloved, Christ is inside of you this morning. Amen? In other words, God's true church is composed, as we learned before, of people and not buildings, institutions, and organizations this morning, beloved. Amen? While the mystery of iniquity or the papacy or the church of Satan, on the other hand, is composed of luxurious buildings, St. Peter's Basilica, are you following me? Elaborate institutions and complex organizations this morning. For God's true church consists of people, of relationships. Those who have been born again is related of those who are in heaven and on this earth. The universal church truly is composed of people this morning. Are you following me? God's true church is the opposite of the mystery of iniquity. See, the mystery of iniquity has a false gospel, a false church, temple, and it also has a false system. And God's system is totally, completely different this morning. Now turn, I want to look at this quote right here, the last quote on your, your handout here. And this is what it says here from Christ's Object Lessons. The Jewish leaders back then with pride upon the magnificent temple. It's interesting that these are the very leaders that when the Son of God came, they murdered him, a person. But upon the, the, the temple, they look upon the temple with great pride. But when the Son of God comes, they kill him. So they look upon the building, the magnificent tem temple, and the imposing rites of the religious service. So they look upon the religious services as, as the all-spiritual thing. Remember, Mr. Iniquity is false temple, false religious service, right? But justice, mercy, and the love of God were lacking. Now, I want you to apply this to maybe where we are in the history today. The glory of the temple the splendor of their service could not recommend them to God. For that which alone is of value in his sight, they did not offer. They did not bring him the sacrifice of a humble and a contrite spirit. Listen to this. It is when the vital principles of the kingdom of God are lost, when the spirituality is lost, that ceremonies become multitudinous and extravagant. When you lose the spirituality, that's when you want a beautiful, expensive church building on the outside. Are you following me? When you lose your spirituality, that's when you want an, an entertainment system of a worship service that will entertain you and make you feel good. It is when the character building is neglected, when the adornment of the soul is lacking, when the simplicity of godliness is lost sight of, that pride and love of display demand magnificent church edifices, splendid adornings, and imposing ceremonials. And all of this, God is not honored. A fashionable religion that consists of ceremonies, pretense, and display is not acceptable to him this morning. His services call for no response from the heavenly messengers this morning. Amen? How is eternal life described? Turn to John chapter 17, verse 3. John chapter 17, verse 3. Notice the Bible says here. 
Jesus said, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they might, what? Know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now that word is actually the same word, you know, that the Bible uses to describe a sexual union between a man and a woman. Now this was meant to show the close unity, the oneness that God wants with you and me this morning, beloved. Amen? Now I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say that eternal life was going to heaven and walking on streets of gold. He didn't say that eternal life was going to live in a mansion forever in heaven. He didn't say that eternal life was going to go to heaven and worship in an elaborate, beautiful temple. I want you to know that Jesus said something so simple and profound this morning, that eternal life to God was not even to analyze God or to intellectualize the Bible or go through the forms of ceremony. He said eternal life is this, something personal, and it is this, that is to love Him and is to know Him this morning, beloved. Amen? But to know him is to love him. And to love him is to obey him this morning, beloved. Amen? Amen? In other words, Jesus defined eternal life as something that is primarily and foremost based upon people. Relationships. Knowing God is a relationship with him. People this morning. And not upon church buildings, church hierarchical structures, or church organizations. Amen. Thus it revealed that eternal life is about people this morning, beloved. God, you, me this morning, and others is about relationships. The Ten Commandments, the first four and the last six, reveal our relationship with God, the first four, and reveal our relationship with each other this morning. And God said eternal life is about people and relationships this morning. There's a true story I want to share with you as I end. Of a lady named Igita from Latvia. And Latvia was a, is a place that has been devast was devastated from the Soviet Union. And this speaker was speaking one time, and he mentioned eternal life. And after his sermon, he preached his message, she ran down the center of the aisle, she came to the front, she came to that speaker. She said to him, how can a God give me something that I don't want. How can a God be so cruel and mean to force this upon me? I don't want this eternal life. Let me tell you what happened to me. She shared in vivid detail how the Soviets, they came to her house and in front of the whole family shot her dad in the head and killed him. And then in front of the whole family, in front of her brothers, and in front of her own fiancé, they raped her and her mom in front of them. And then when that was done, they then killed the brothers and her fiancé. And then they took the mother away and they never saw the mother ever, ever again. And she says, this is what they did to me. It says, if that's what eternal life is about, then I don't want nothing to do with God. You can tell your God that I, want, I don't want that eternal life. And with that, she turned away and she walked away. And he said, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come back here. Give me a chance. Let me just share with you something. There's something there in her eye that she wanted to know. So she came back and said, I want you to close your eyes. 
And I want you to imagine the most happiest times you've ever had in your life. Think about the good times, the times when you, you were happy with joy and happiness. And there she was, and started to crack a smile for the first time in years. And then she started explaining to him, I, I remember the time where I used to go on my dad's back, and he used to swim out into the ocean, where the river we're at, and he used to pretend he was a whale. Those are the happiest times of my life. And I, I remember the time where mom and I, we used to, she used to talk to me too late at night and read me stories, and we used to laugh and be happy till late in the night. Oh, but then I remember how it was with my, my fiancé. I never met a man like that. I've, I've never been so happy. I've, I want to spend the rest of my life. I was looking forward to spend the rest of my life with him. And I couldn't wait. And then it broke as a flood of light in her eyes of the darkness about God. And she started to break down with tears and realize that there's something there. And he said, all the good memories that you ever had, it all began in the heart of God this morning. And what you experience, or any happiness that you've ever experienced, that is just a small taste of what heaven and eternal life will be forever. And beloved, this morning, I want you to try something this morning. I want you to close your eyes this morning. And I want you to forget about all the negative things out there. The rumors and lies you heard about God. And I want you to just think about your past life. And I want you to think about all the good things that ever happened to you. What memories bring back to you? What thoughts come to your mind and feelings come back to you about when you were growing up? Spending time with your mom, your dad, brothers and sisters. Then I want you to imagine if you've experienced it, if you haven't, imagine it, but how it was, remember, when it was to fall in love and those feelings that you had. What were your thoughts? What were you looking forward to in life? Whatever you have thought or, or feel this morning, is only a small taste of the eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. Amen? That is what heaven's about. Sin has come in and destroyed this world, but God has given us a better life and a better future because we've tasted just a little bit. We've tasted and seen that God is good this morning. And many of you have experienced it in your own life. So this morning, why don't you allow your soul to come out from this hiding place behind the temporal things of this world and said, why don't you lay your soul bare before an all-knowing and seeing God so they can show to you how naked and devoid of the Spirit of God you are this morning. This morning, I want to know Jesus Christ more than ever before. Amen? I want to come close to him. I want a real relationship. I don't want to depend upon temporal things that will be destroyed in, this, in, this, in the lake of fire in the future, even on this earth, how beautiful the structure may be. There'll be a time where you can't depend upon the leadership in a church, we're told. There'll be a time where beautiful churches will be destroyed in a second. But there's one thing that will never change, beloved, this morning, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? He will never let you down. He'll be there for you. 
This morning, if it's your desire for God to reveal to you a true condition so that you may come ever close to Him, then would you raise your hand with me this morning? Amen. I want to be there in eternal life with a Savior who loves me and you this morning. Our closing hymn is 301, Nearer, Still Nearer. 301, Nearer, Still Nearer.